this summer, we've been engaged in a study of Romans 8 on Sunday nights. Our ministers have taken turns turn presenting sections of this wonderful, this, this beautiful, this deep chapter. And tonight we're going to conclude that study of Romans chapter 8 with our eighth lesson in the series. And I want to invite you to turn there with me, and we're going to read the last few verses of Romans chapter 8, which might just be some of the most powerful verses of the entire chapter. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. That's Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now Paul begins this section with a rhetorical question, and that's not new because he had done it in the previous verses. In verse 33 and verse 34, he asks a rhetorical question that he answers. But this time he kind of builds up to his answer. He asks the rhetorical question in verse 35, but doesn't really answer it till verse 38 and 39. And that question is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And that's a very bold question. And I say that simply because Paul's, Paul's addressing something that has plagued man ever since the Garden of Eden. He's posing a question about separation, and separation has been a problem ever since the first sin. Think back to it. When Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, the subsequent consequence was not only that they would die, not only that woman would have more greater pain in childbirth, and not only would man have more greater sweat and toil in his labor, but another aspect of that consequence was their dismissal from the garden. And so if you look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24, we're told that the Lord God drove out the man from the garden, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That first sin resulted in dismissal from the garden, and a truly intimidating gatekeeper at its lone entrance. And you have to remember, when they were in the garden, they had this unique and intimate relationship with the Lord. Genesis talks about how, how God would come down to the garden, and they could hear the sound of Him walking through the garden, and they would communicate with Him. But that intimacy was lost upon their, their sin, and separation ensued. And here's the thing, every human being since them has experienced that separation. Their separation from God because of their sin 
is experienced by everyone. Because as Paul pointed out in this very same book, just a few chapters earlier, back in chapter 3 and verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And just as Adam and Eve's sin led to their separation, so does ours. At least that's what Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2. Isaiah says, your iniquities, and iniquities is just a fancy word for sin, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The consequence of sin is separation. And that separation, that separation was visible to the Israelites. That separation was intentionally on display for them in the architecture of the tabernacle. The tabernacle proper, the, the main housing unit of the tabernacle and its subsequent temple, consisted of two rooms. We talked about those rooms last year as we studied uh, the Rooms to Go series. And one of those rooms was called the Holy Place, and it was in the Holy Place that you could find that golden lampstand, that table of showbread, that altar of incense. And it was inside that holy place, that front room, that priests could enter and fulfill their daily duties, and they could interact with those, those pieces of furniture on a daily basis. But then there was another room, a, a back room, a separate room. And it housed the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of that Ark of the Covenant sat the mercy seat. And that mercy seat was significant because as Moses was instructed by God regarding that mercy seat, he was told that there I will meet with you. God said there where that mercy seat is, that's where I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Those were the words God spoke about that particular piece of furniture in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 22. But because the mercy seat represented the very presence of God among the Israelites, it required separation because all those Israelites were guilty of sin. And so what did God do? He ordered the construction, the fabrication of a giant curtain which you can read about in Exodus chapter 26, particularly verse 31 through 33. God instructed Moses to make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and to hang it on four pillars with hooks. And then he was to bring the Ark of the Testimony into that second room, that room known as the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. And he was to place the Ark in there and then the curtain would hang in front of the Ark, separating it from the rest of that tabernacle complex. And there, in Exodus chapter 26 and verse 33, God explained that the veils shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place because that's what was necessary due to mankind's sin. And so the one physical object that God permitted Israel to construct that would represent his presence among his people was intentionally separated from them so that no one except the high priest ever got to see it. And that separation, 
that separation due to sin was communicated by Jesus as the ultimate consequence of sin. Jesus frequently associated hell with darkness. You can see it in two of his parables, the parable of the wedding feast and the parable of the talents. You can also see it in one of his teaching moments when he interacted with the centurion who took him at his word regarding a healing. And in those instances, Jesus associated punishment with being cast into the outer darkness. And the metaphor of darkness that is utilized in the context of hell, it implies that hell will be a place of isolation, a place of loneliness, a place where you experience those relational catastrophes, if you will, because you are permanently separated from God. You see, throughout the Bible, God's presence is consistently associated with light. Just think about the burning bush. Think about that pillar of fire that led Israel by night. Think about what John says of God in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. God is light. If you want to be with God, you have to walk in the light. God is consistently, and his presence is consistently associated with light throughout the Bible. And his absence is consistently associated with darkness. In fact, that 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 passage says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And so when Jesus presents hell as a place without light, a place of complete and total darkness, what he's essentially communicating is hell is a place where God is not. In fact, Paul would summarize this the best in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 when he described hell as a place away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. See, Jesus communicated in those darkness metaphors related to hell that the ultimate consequence of your sin is eternal separation from God. And that's really what makes hell so horrible. Because when you get over to the end of the book of Revelation and you have these descriptions of heaven in the, in the 21st and 22nd chapter, one of the beautiful or the most beautiful description that's present in that text is the fact that God will come down and be with his people that God will be the temple amongst his people, that God will be the light amongst his people, that the separation no longer exists. And so when Paul here in Romans chapter 8 asks this rhetorical question that includes the theme of separation, I can only imagine that some of this is on the minds of his Christian audience. Because the one thing we don't want is separation from God. The one thing we don't want is for God to be distant, for God not to be present. Because life apart from God is miserable. That's why when David repented of his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, his ultimate request was 
for God, was cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. He had seen what it had done to Saul when the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And he saw how horrible Saul's life was from that day forward. And David feared that the most. Separation is the last thing you want. And Paul is asking, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes on to indicate that there is one thing you can never be separated from. Paul says you will never be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In fact, Paul makes a list of all the things he can think of that could impact our relationship with the Lord, that could affect his love for us. And he runs down a list of ten different things. He mentions death and life. You know, death is a consequence of the fall that is a constant reminder to us of our failure to be faithful to God. And Paul says that the end of our physical existence cannot bring an end to God's love for us. And he mentions life, and it's interesting, he does death and life, not life and death. He does the reverse order of what we would say. But he mentions life, and, and, and when you look at the sex, life doesn't fit in the, in, the, in the list. For some reason, you don't look at life as a threat to the love of God. Maybe death, but not life. But maybe what Paul's saying here is that not all lives are lived the way they ought to be lived. Not all lives are faithful to God. Not all lives are consistent with His will. And maybe even the lives that fail to live up to God's standards could be a threat to God's love, but they're not. God loves you despite how your life turns out. That same list goes on to include angels and rulers, or angels and principalities, or angels and demons, depending on which translation you're reading. The terminology here, angels, is obvious to us. The rulers, principalities, or demons seems a little um, mixed up. But what is most likely happening here is that Paul's making a reference to angelic beings that constitute the entire spectrum of good and evil. That term translated rulers, principalities, or demons can refer to authoritative rulers on this earth, but it can also refer to rulers in the spiritual realm, particularly those opposed to the will of God. And while we're comfortable talking about demons and evil spirits as threats to God's love, angels just seem out of place in such a context. But the overarching idea that Paul is presenting is that God's love is so great that no spiritual force could cancel it. He then goes on to mention things present and things to come. Those are our designators of time. And as one commentator pointed out, neither the present with its temptations and sufferings nor the future with its uncertainties will be able to interfere with God's love for us. Then, there, then in this list of those things that could threaten God's love, those potential threats to God's love, one word appears by itself, and it's the word powers. It's a term that's very similar to rulers and principalities and demons earlier in the text. And it can also refer to spiritual or earthly entities. But in context, it appears to be a reference to human agents that stand in opposition to God's people in much the same way that evil spirits did. 
It's quite likely that Paul is thinking of human agencies like the Jewish Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 that tried to stop the apostles from talking about Jesus. Or maybe he was even thinking about the Roman government that began persecuting Christians, especially during the days of Nero, which may be the time frame in which this very letter was written. And the point he seems to be making is that there is no one on earth, no matter how powerful they are, that can interfere with the love God has for you. And then finally on the list, you come to height and depth. Those terms are our spatial concepts, but figuratively, they, ref- they could refer to prosperity and misery, or success and failure, or joy and sorrow. So it may be that Paul is saying that our circumstances and our experiences, they can't change how God feels about us. And if that list wasn't complete enough, Paul added on his own form of an etc. by saying anything else in all creation. Paul's point is that God's love is unconditional. There are no conditions on God's love. He loves you no matter what. The same isn't, can't always be said about people. Too often we've experienced people falling out of love, people putting conditions on their love, people unable to love. That's not the case with God. His love is unconditional, and do you know why it's unconditional? God's love is unconditional because it is not contractual, it's covenantal. And let me explain what I mean by that. We're very accustomed to contractual relationships. For instance, many of you right now possess a cell phone. Most of you probably obtained that cell phone through a cell phone provider, which meant you had to meet with some agent, whether in person or on, on, on the phone or something of that nature. You had to meet with somebody and probably had to sign a contract. And the basic principle of the contract is this cell phone provider will provide you the equipment you need as well as the data you need to make that phone operate. In exchange for that, you will provide that company with some money. And here's the thing. If you fail to pay for the services they provide, then you're in breach of the contract and they can terminate their relationship with you. And if they fail to provide the services that are indicated in the contract, then you can withhold your payment to them, or you can terminate the relationship with them because they're in breach of the contract. And that's how we operate in many relationships today. We operate in a world where our relationships are bound by, you do this for me, I'll do this for you. And so oftentimes, we develop the mindset that that's how all relationships should work. How many marriages have fallen apart because one party won't do anything because they're waiting on the other party to fulfill their obligation? 
How many marriages fall apart because we won't practice the principle of forgiveness that Jesus told Peter to apply to his life when he said, forgive him 70 times 7 using hyperbole? How many relationships fall apart because we look at them through contractual eyes? We look at them as, I do this, and in exchange, you do this. Because that's not the way the love of God works. See, God's love is not contractual. God's love is covenantal. And that means God's love is going to remain the same regardless of what we do or how we treat him. This is evident from the story of Hosea. I'm not going to read the whole book of Hosea, but let me give you a good summary of what happens. Hosea is given a prophetic assignment that none of us would want. His assignment is this. Go marry a promiscuous woman. Hosea chapter 1 and verse 2. And God was intentional about ordering that. Because what God wanted was for Hosea's relationship with his wife, whose name is Gomer, he wanted their relationship to illustrate the relationship he's had with Israel. How this whole time he's been their husband, figuratively speaking, and all they've done is cheat on him with other little g gods. They have yet to remain faithful to him despite the relationship. And the other instruction God gave Hosea at the outset of that book was for him to have children with this promiscuous wife. In total, three children entered the story. The first was definitely Hosea's child, but the last two were possibly fathered by another man due to Gomer's promiscuity. I'm trying to see how many times I can fit that word into this sermon, apparently. Two of, to, to those latter two children, those youngest two children, God instructed Hosea to give them some unique names. To one of them, in Hosea chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, God told him to name that child, No Mercy. And to the other, God told Hosea to name that child, Not Love. Oh, I'm sorry, Not My People. That No Mercy name implied a lack of love. I'm not going to show compassion on you anymore, is the idea behind that name. And that name, not my people, implies disassociation. You don't belong to me, is the message it sends. How would you like to be a child named not mine? Or not love? Because that's the idea behind these children's names. But that's not the end of Hosea's story. Hosea's wife ran off, returned to a life of prostitution. And in Hosea chapter 3 and verse 1, God instructed Hosea to find his wife and love her again. Is that an assignment you'd really want God to give to you? And the reason God ordered this task for Hosea is because he still wanted Hosea's relationship with his wife to demonstrate the relationship God had with his people. 
Because every time Israel ran off after another deity, God welcomed them back eventually. God went and found them and loved them again. And so in Hosea chapter 3 and verse 1, God said, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Hosea did that. But God didn't stop there. You remember the two children, the, the ones who were named No Mercy and Not Loved? Or Not Mine, I should say. Those were the names God was assigning to his people because of their unfaithfulness to him. And they demonstrated the consequences of their relationship with God that had failed. But then in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 23... God said, I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall, he, he, he shall say, you are my God. The point God was making there was that he was still going to welcome those children into his family. He was still going to love them, even though they weren't his. The whole family dynamic of Hosea is convoluted and complicated. And definitely not a family you would want to have to deal with. But you are a part of that family. Because you're just like his wife and, and his children because of your sin. And the whole story of Hosea is set up to show us just how much God loves us. Because he welcomes back his adulterous wife. And he welcomes back his dispossessed children. And it shows us that God's love is not contractual. God's love is not based on what we can do in return. God's love is covenantal. It's his desire to love us, not his duty. God has chosen to love us, and the truth is that God can't resist loving us. As one preacher said, God does not have love. God does not do love. God is love. That doesn't mean that all love is God or that love is the deity that we worship or that God is the embodiment of love. He could no more deny himself then he could stop loving you. In fact, God's love is so great is that it was directed towards you before you were deserving of it. Just a couple of chapters earlier in Romans, Paul said this, Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ loved, I mean, God loved you before you were right with him. God loved you before you received salvation. God loved you when you bore the title of sinner. Because his love is unconditional. 
And that means there is nothing you can do to make God love you more than he does right now, and there is nothing you can do to make God love you less than he does right now. His love is not contractual. As one preacher said, God doesn't love us if we do this or we do that. God loves us even if we do this or we do that. Do you know what that means? That means that our sins may separate us from God's presence, but they cannot separate us from his love. And so those who choose to go to hell, and yes, it is your choice, those who choose to go to hell will go there still being loved by God. There is no end to his love. And it's no wonder then that 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 tells us that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's heart yearns for the lost. It breaks his heart to think that someone he loves is not going to spend eternity with him. God loves us that much. His love is unconditional. There's a lighthouse just southeast of Boston Harbor on what is called Minutes Ledge. It's located one mile off the coast of Massachusetts near, near the town of Cohasset. It was originally constructed in 1850, but a major storm destroyed it, and so the current tower was completed in 1860. In 1894, it adopted some flashing lights. These flashing lights have a one, four, three cycle. So it flashes once, then it flashes four times, and then it flashes three times over and over again. And it's become known as the I Love You Lighthouse because of that one, four, three light signal. So for nearly 130 years, the Minutes Ledge Lighthouse has been unintentionally notifying the world of love. And like that lighthouse, Romans 8, though intentionally, has been doing the same thing. Romans 8 begins with Paul telling us that there is no condemnation in Christ because of what God has done for us. And Romans 8 ends with Paul telling us that there is confidence in Christ because of God's love for us. You can be confident that God will never stop loving you. You can be confident that no matter what happens in your life, what choices you make or what you've done, no matter what your past looks like or what your future looks like, God is going to love you. There is something beautiful about unconditional love. But don't get me wrong. God's love is not conditioned based on what you do or don't do. But salvation is. God's love and salvation are not one and the same. You aren't saved just because God loves you. 
you wouldn't be saved if God didn't love you. But there's still something for us to do. God's love calls us to repent of our sins. God's love calls us to confess that His Son is our Savior who came to this earth and died on that cross and rose from that grave so that we could spend eternity in the presence of God. And God's love calls us to surrender to the waters of baptism so that our sins can be washed away. God loved you so much that he didn't withhold his son from you. God loved you so much that he would do anything to prevent you from going to hell. So really the only question is, how much do you love him? Tonight, if you need to respond to the invitation, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing. Would you live for Jesus and be always pure and good? Would you walk with him within the If you're with us and have not partaken of the Lord's Supper today, it's prepared in the back. Uh, while we sing this next song, uh, you can exit the doors and head to the right. There's a room back there where it's prepared. <laughs> 
uh, number 53. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died. song. I'll sing just the first and last verse. I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver and a little Yeah. 
If you would please pray with me Turn it back off a little bit let us pray heavenly father we we come to you we thank you for this beautiful lord's day that you blessed us with we're thankful for the opportunity that we've had to come here this morning and this evening to hear portions of your word sing songs of praise to you we're thankful for that heavenly father at this time we want to just say thank you for um the leadership here at this church we want to thank you for our elders our deacons the, our teachers our ministers all that uh do that work to, to further your kingdom, dear Heavenly Father. We know a lot of this work goes on behind the scenes, and and is, is uh, it's just you know goes on behind the scenes, and we're just thankful for that, dear Heavenly Father. At this time, dear Heavenly Father, we want to uh, remember those that are mentioned on our prayer list, those that are hurting or lost loved ones, or those who are uh, got upcoming surgeries, dear Heavenly Father. If you would please look after these individuals. Um, and help them get through that and uh, restore their health if it be your will and also help us to reach out to them and help them in any way that we can we're thankful for all that you do for us we're thankful for your word may we put uh, you first in our lives let our christian light shine and uh, finally dear Heavenly father we just want to say thank you again for all that you do and uh, be with us in this upcoming week keep us safe we offer this prayer in your son's name amen <clears throat> 